God everywhere. Can I ask, who voted on Thursday? Who went out and voted? Yeah. Okay, I, I went out and voted, and I, I noticed something on the ballot paper, on the, the form. Um, there was a mistake on the form. It was, it was right there in front of me. There were only three candidates, and I scanned the addresses where they lived just to see that they were all from Ipswich, which is because uh, sometimes you get these people who are miles away standing. And, and they were. They all lived in Ipswich. And um, the first one gave his address, Ipswich, and the postcode. The second one, Ipswich, and a postcode. The third one, Ipswich, Suffolk, and a postcode. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're really sad for noticing this. Yeah, yeah, a few nods there. Um, it's an occupational hazard, actually. I work as a graphic designer, and um, a lot of the things I do, magazines, leaflets, brochures, we try and keep a style, um, a way of doing things, so that um, everything looks the same, and that you, you always present things in the same way. You always... Um, use dashes in the same way, the same type of dashes in the, for the same circumstances. You always spell things in the same way, if there's more than one possible spelling for something. Um, I mean, it can get really complicated, even today's date. How should you write today's date? It is today's date, isn't it? Yep, that's all right. Um, <laughs> Which one's right? Well, actually, number two is only right if you're an American. But the others, you could write it in all of them. You, you could put it anyway. But whichever you choose, if you're putting a publication together, you should be consistent. And it should be used the same way throughout, throughout however you write anything. Um, again, you're thinking, he's sad. This is a sad thing to do for a living. It's not, it's not all that I do. But um, that, that's part of it. Uh, but I was wondering, you see, it's not just the text. It's the styles of the um, way things go together. It's the graphics. It's the colour systems that you use if, if things are going out for a certain organisation and things. All these things have to be consistent. And if they're not consistent, things are, they just don't seem right. They don't seem professional somehow. They don't, just don't hang together properly. Now, why am I saying all that in a church sermon? Well, what about me? How consistent am I? It's, it's quite easy to divide up your life into different areas. Um, I know I do it. You do it without thinking. You have a church area of life. We have a, a work area of life. There's home, there's school, there's socialising the people we meet in the week, at, at play. There's all the different areas. And it can be really easy to adopt a different set of attitudes and beliefs about what happens there. It's, it's really in, easy to be very spiritual when you're surrounded by spiritual people. Being, sorry, being imitators of God isn't so hard when you're in front of a load of Christians. What about all these other places? Now, I'm not so much thinking about your behaviour as such. Um, that's not the sort of thing I'm going down at the moment. I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about the way we look at things, what we believe, our worldview. 
Is the Christ who is triumphant and Lord over all on a Sunday morning still the Christ who is triumphant and Lord over all at work on a Monday or at home on a Monday or when something's gone wrong or when there's a disaster? How do we view the world? I mean, a church, he's so much... Well, he's here. How, how here is he elsewhere, if you see what I mean? We know God's everywhere. I mean, we know that. It's a fact, isn't it? All Christians, all, we all know God is everywhere. But is that everywhere just a little bit distant during the week, during other times, when we're in other places? In the passage we read, um, we just had read for us from Luke, Simon Peter, um, the disciple we probably just call Peter most of the time. That was his first encounter with Jesus. Where was he? He was at work. He was washing his nets. He was a fisherman. That was work. He wasn't in the synagogue. He wasn't in some service. He wasn't in the middle of a deep theological discussion with someone. He was at the office. Now, as you try and picture this, I want you to lose any impression you have of this idyllic countryside scene, you know, with the sun setting over the lake and these rural fishermen pulling up nets and how wonderful and beautiful and gentle and peaceful it is. This was hard graft. Peter had worked the night shift He'd been working all night. It wasn't only hard graft, it was hard graft for nothing. They hadn't caught anything, nothing at all. Things were not going well. So let's try and get into his mind a little. Would he have been worried about feeding his family? Maybe he, just didn't, he didn't just use the fish for feeding his family, he probably sold some to make money. Was he in debt? Did he need to have this money to be able to pay his creditors? Could he lose his boats, his livelihood? Worse, in those days, could he lose his family? Could they be taken into slavery? Maybe fishing hadn't been too good for a while. Maybe it wasn't just that night. He had taxes to pay. The Romans didn't just send you a red letter if you didn't pay it first time. He's probably tired, irritable, no catch, he'd have been hungry. That's where God met him, on the beach, right there. That's where Jesus walked into his life, in those circumstances. What's the first thing Jesus does? Well, he actually, without improving his circumstances at all, he turns his work into a platform for the gospel, quite literally in this time. He, um, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little into the shore, from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. He quite literally used his workplace as a platform for preaching the gospel. Is it possible 
that Jesus might want to do the same with you. I'm not suggesting that you have to stand up and give a sermon. But is it possible that he might have chosen where you work and where you are? Because he wants to be there with you for something. Maybe for other people around you. Next thing he does, he turns a failed business into an incredible success. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now I'm not going to preach a prosperity gospel. I'm not going to say, if you're a Christian, get everything right, your business will definitely be a success, you'll make huge amounts of money, and and everything will be fine. I'm not going to say that for a moment. That isn't always true. Often things are really hard. But Jesus can be just as much there and use those circumstances. In fact, after he'd done this for Peter, he actually asked him to leave it all. Again, he doesn't do that to everyone. He doesn't ask people to leave their jobs and and to go and do something else. Sometimes he does. A friend of mine at work, because I work as a graphic designer for a missionary society, a friend of mine at work once used the phrase, have you been called to stay where you are? And that's something worth thinking about. Really, the question is, are you where God wants you? Whether it's at work, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, whether it should be overseas serving, whether it should be doing something totally different, whether it should be looking after the kids. Has Jesus called you to do that? He does call a lot of people to do those things. And it's worth seeing them as as callings from him. Peter's experience is probably the exception from the rule. During the Lent series we did, do you remember um, Jesus' last words, final meal, final meal, something like that, I can't remember the time. I designed the logo, I should remember. Um, You remember the course, we studied um, um, John chapters 13 to 17, and we looked at what Jesus said over that time, just before he was taken away and crucified, the last things he wanted to impart to to his disciples. One thing that really struck me, I mean there are lots of other things that, that I'm sure other people have taken away, but one thing that really struck me was when Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's very easy to pick up this this picture of, I don't know, that's presented about spirit-filled Christians and really spiritual, um, you know, we talk about the gifts of the spirit, the power of the spirit, and we get images of maybe a very Pentecostal-style service, um, maybe people speaking in tongues, maybe falling over, and some of these are what uh, people regard as, as really spiritual and spiritually powerful. And yet virtually every time Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit in these chapters, he's not talking about in here, in church. He's talking about out there, in the world, in what's happening around. I'd actually like to challenge you to read through those, those chapters again at some point and just see how much out there Jesus is talking about with the Holy Spirit what he's sent to do, um, what, he, what he can do in people's lives.
What does that mean about being spirit-filled in your life? About consistency in different areas? One of my other jobs at work is uh, looking after all of their data, well, computer systems. And um, computer manager, I think, is the title. Computer nurse would probably be more accurate, um, as they, they tend to fall over a lot, and I have to fix them and patch them up. Um, but one thing with, um, with that is, with, with the general move in computing these days, I hope I don't bore anyone who's not interested in computers whatsoever, um, is getting all your data, all your information, and storing it in one central place. You could have the same thing at home with your um, diary or your notebook. Have you ever found you've got two copies of someone's address, and they're different? And you know they moved, but which one of these was the most recent? Or did they move after then? And, you know, it, it's having all the data based on the same thing so that it works everywhere, so that whenever you go to it, it's the same. It's always right. And what about in your lives as, as our belief in God, in what he can do, and in Jesus? Do we work on the same set of data, the same information, when we're out and about? as we do when we're deliberately thinking about him, maybe in church or in your quiet time or house groups or, or wherever. Do we work from the same data? Do we have a different set of ways of interpreting what's around us when we're thinking spiritually or theologically than we do when we're thinking nine to five or when we're at home? Are there places that you're thinking, well, he just doesn't go there. God just can't go into those places. There are things that he just can't do. You, might, you won't word it like that, I'm sure, but do you know what it's like when there are problems or maybe there are people that you think he just won't do anything there, he, he can't do anything I want to paint you a word picture. I want to paint you a word picture. Now imagine, it starts off pretty good. Imagine you're in Old Testament times. You're of the tribe of Levi. That's a very special tribe. It's the tribe that was the ministers, if you like. They were the ministers of the land. Better than that, you're a descendant of Aaron. You're going to be a priest. You're going to spend your life working in the temple, serving God, praising God, seeing God at work. That's your job. The day you turn 30, that's when you start on that job. Now imagine, well, just thinking about that, the temple, it's God's seat on earth, it's God's house. It's his throne. It's in Jerusalem. That's God's city. That's the city God chose. It's in Israel. It's the promised land. It's the centre of everything. Now imagine, Israel is conquered. It's defeated. 
Jerusalem has been destroyed. The walls have been torn down. The temple has been destroyed. God's temple, his throne on earth, is gone. It's rubble. It's pulled down by invading forces. And you, you've been exiled. You're thousands of, well, hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Babylon. Could you be any further from God? Could God be any further away and have deserted you? That's exactly the situation that Ezekiel was in, in that reading that, we, um, that Julie had, um, brought to us this morning. That's exactly where he was. He was just about to turn 30, in the 30th, his 30th year, it said. How empty would he have felt? And even worse, there was a storm approaching. But God was riding on that storm. I won't go through all the details of that vision again. I'm not going to read it. It's a pretty long story. That was an artist's impression I found. Um, very, very abstract, I'm sure. Probably doesn't <laughs> do too good to try and imagine exactly what it would have looked like. But I thought that was quite fun. But God came to him on that storm. And did you notice the, the details of it? What they represented? It was God's chariot. This was the chariot of God approaching. If you like, this was the divine Batmobile turning up. The wheels, they can go in any direction. They could go in any of four directions. Creatures that faced in four directions at once and without turning could go anywhere. Eyes on those wheels that looked and saw everything. Double sets of wings for flight and for protection. Four of everything, symbolising completeness in the Bible. The four different faces symbolising all creation. Wheels for travelling on smooth ground. Wings to take to the air. Calves' feet for off, over rough ground. A rainbow for the heavens. Everything, everything speaks of mobility, of being able to go anywhere. In Babylon, in captivity, in despair, God turns up with a throne room. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord as far away as he thought he could possibly be from him. Now, I don't for a moment think that God actually needs a vehicle to travel around in. But I think Ezekiel might have needed to see it in those circumstances, just to reassure him. God was there in power and in glory, far greater than most people would have got to see in the temple. Where can't God go? 
Where can't he meet you? Is there a place that you feel alone? A problem that he just can't meet you in? People who are too far from him? Pains that he can't reach? Circumstances that are beyond him? It feels like that at times, I know. But it's not actually true. He can. Ezekiel wouldn't have believed it before it happened. He wouldn't have believed it was possible. I know there are people here who can testify, lots of them, that in circumstances they wouldn't have believed possible God's met them. And he can. He didn't, interestingly, take Ezekiel out of exile. He didn't move him away. He just used him where he was. Peter, he changed his circumstances entirely. He works in different ways. But he always works. Let's pray. God of everywhere, we pray that we would see you in those places where we unconsciously maybe believe that you can't go. We pray that we might know your glory. We pray that we might see you changing and transforming things. And if not transforming things, then transforming us in those things. Help us to know that consistency. The things that we believe, the things that we sometimes struggle to believe, are true, are real, and are everywhere. May we know that all this is possible in Christ alone. Amen.